This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit sermonaudio.com to download this article by Bojidar Marinoff. The gospel is very simple. Jesus died for you. Nothing more than that. This says a popular modern preacher who passes for Reformed these days and has a wide following of people who believe that by following him, they're following the doctrines of the Reformation. He claims he could explain the gospel in six minutes. Because, you know, the gospel is just a few intellectual propositions that we need to memorize. Yes, to memorize, he says, and repeat them to ourselves over and over again ad nauseum. For he also said that you never outgrow your need for the gospel and explain that the gospel, or at least what he means by the gospel, just a few short, simple intellectual propositions, that simple intellectual awareness that Jesus died for you, according to his own words, is not simply something by which we enter the church or become Christians, but something we constantly need to repeat ourselves over and over again, over and over again. Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, for me, and so on. In case it is unclear as to why we need to remind ourselves of such a simple proposition every day, and just that, because this is all that's in the gospel. The preacher then continued by explaining what the whole, that the whole point of the gospel, listen to this, is our need for salvation. That's why the Bible is such a fat book, he says. You know, that's why it's such a fat book, you know. Because our, our need for salvation is so big. It just we our need for salvation is so big that, that, that God wrote this fat book just because our need for salvation is big. It's not because the gospel is big. It's actually very short. If it was just for the gospel, he could have written it on one third of a actually in one sentence or something. But that book is big because of us. I mean, we're, we're the determining factor in why the Bible is around. Not the gospel. Got that? No. The gospel is really small. One sentence. But must be written in a big book because of us. God depends on us. Whole history depends on us. So the emphasis is this. Jesus died for me. You know, Jesus is a small guy with a small gospel. But it's me that made the gospel so big and so important. This is what is preached in the churches of America today. It's not just this preacher. There are quite a few of all here who remember the old days, when old age, maturity, wise and prudent behavior, self-restraint, self-discipline were the accepted values of the culture. 
young boys like to dress like grown-up men. And in fact, there was a day when there was no special section in the store for teenagers. Young girls on the school prom pictures looked like younger and prettier versions of their middle-aged mothers. They wanted to be like that. They wanted to look like their mothers. Intentionally so. In everything. Hair, dress, makeup, you name it. Teenager was not a known word in those days. Once a boy or a girl crossed into what today is considered teenage, they were adults. Expected to take care of themselves. There was no such thing as a separate teenage subculture defined by specific clothes, hairstyles, slang, or behavior. There was no such thing in those old days. We still have men living in our society today, and I know a few of them, who in their youth joined the military and lied about their age. It was a time... When people, when they lied about their age, they added years to their real age, not subtracted. Men were entrepreneurs, military commanders, intellectual leaders, preachers, etc. at inconceivably young ages. They went to work and made business at a young age. It wasn't that long ago that 16-year-old boys became door-to-door salesmen and were able to communicate with adults with such an ease that helped them sell to reluctant adults. If a schoolboy had a conflict with a teacher in school, it was the schoolboy that was in trouble, not the school and not the teacher. Remember those days? And look at the movie stars today and compare them to the stars of 50 years back. Can you compare the modern infantile male characters or what passes for male characters? Who look like 30-year-old adolescents to any of the characters of, let's say, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, Humphrey Bogart? The culture has become infantilized, reduced to childishness, to imbecility, to complete irrelevance. Yes, the culture is irrelevant. I laughed at the attempts of the modern seeker-sensitive churches to be relevant with the modern culture. Because being relevant with what is utterly irrelevant is simply ridiculous. Now, how, how did we get to this? What is the factor that produced such quick deterioration of culture from maturity to childishness? How can one generation value maturity and wisdom? And kids lie about their age to look like adults. And then the next one detests those values and turn to childishness, irresponsibility and foolishness as the preferred values of the age. How did we get to this, that being a young person has a higher value in everybody's mind than being old and wise? Don't look farther than the church for the reason. For what the church is preaching is what the world is becoming. 
not only directly through direct influence of our preaching, but also indirectly by way of competition from our non-Christian and pagan neighbors. If they could have their way, they would have remained childish and immature and lazy and irresponsible and immoral and irrelevant if they could. After all, the fallen human heart detests any godly moral values and any thought of productive dominion. Okay? But there's always competition over who will control the society and the resources of that society. And in that competition, Christians, whether they know it or not, whether they realize it or not, are the most powerful group, cultural group, who have the ethical system that allows them to take over a society just within a few generations without much effort, even if they started just from scratch. Exhibit A, the Roman Empire. Their enemies don't have such a system, so they have to imitate. For the very existence of Christians in a society raises the bar for everybody. If you want to make it to the other side, you've got to learn to jump like Christians do. If you can't jump like them, you're a loser. Everyone who wants to compete against Christians must become like them morally. Christians, I mean, who are faithful to the word of God. But what happens when they are not faithful to it? And what happens when they are not only not faithful to it, but also devise theological systems that reduce the message of the gospel to nothing? Using the very pulpit of the church to lower the bar for being a godly Christian. The rest of the society happily follows suit. For now, the bar being lowered for Christians is lowered for everyone in the society. Okay? Pagans can compete against Christians now without too much of a moral effort or moral conscience. And the whole society goes into moral degradation. Welcome to the cultural reality of our modern world. We have reduced the gospel. We have allowed our pulpits to preach to us a small, truncated, toy gospel. A gospel that treats us like children who have no obligations, no abilities, no responsibility, and who can't know their left hand from their right hand. A gospel that is simple, that can be contained in a few words. For you know, we're little babies. We need baby talk. We need to be in a nursery. Not have to face the bigger issues of life, the comprehensive challenges of the world around us. We need nursery rhymes. We have allowed ourselves, as men, husbands, and fathers, To be humiliated in the front of our wives, daughters, and sons by Christian celebrities who have called us babies. And have moralized on us condescendingly. 
and have, have declared that we're too imbecile to understand the depth and the breadth of the full counsel of God. So therefore, we only need a few intellectual propositions repeated to us every Sunday, assuring us that we don't have to make too much of an effort to be obedient to God. We are humiliated and we're taking it as man. We have accepted their milk against the command of the Bible to want the solid food. And we have paid those celebrities richly, making them millionaires, encouraging them to continue emasculating us with their small gospel. We have acquiesced with the proposition that the Bible and God's plan are only about me and mine and me and mine and me and mine, about my desires, my needs, my well-being, my everything, because we are morons anyway and wouldn't understand nor comprehend any message that goes beyond our simple little souls and there's little desires and little needs. We have forgotten what the author of Hebrews tells us at the end of chapter 5. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and by this time it's 2,000 years for us, much more than for them. You have need again... For someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. So we have become. Allowing preachers to do that to us. But solid food is for the mature. Who? Because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Actually, the word discern is judge. And then he continues in the next chapter. Let's not again lay a foundation of those elementary things that your 21st century preachers and teachers and TV evangelists in America continue to repeat over and over and over and over again every Sunday in your churches. Let's go to solid food. Let's look at ourselves as grown up men, not as babies. Being thus castrated, man... We have lost what it takes to successfully challenge the world. We have become infantilized. We have become emasculated. We have become some unisex creatures. And now the whole society has become so too, for we who determine the standards for cultural excellence have lowered them. And everyone else has followed suit happily, finally. We've become infantilized because of the infantilized gospel we have adopted, and the rest of the society have become infantilized. Because as the church goes, so the world is. But isn't it true, though, that the gospel is simple, that everybody can understand it? Isn't it really contained in a few propositions? That's what we've 
we've been hearing all our lives. It should be right. That everyone can understand the gospel. That is correct. But the gospel is not simple. It cannot be contained in six minutes. It cannot be contained in six points or two sentences. It is not baby talk. It is not a nursery rhyme. It is not a motivational speech. It is not a pulpit version of a TV commercial. It is not an external addition to a large world that can continue and continues to operate and exist pretty well and smooth outside of it and without it and independently of it. The gospel is as big as life. In fact, it is bigger than life. It is as big as the world. Or bigger than the world. It is as big as all the obligations of an adult mature man. Plus all the obligations of all the other adult mature men and of the whole society. Nothing is left outside it. Nothing can operate without it. And there is nothing anywhere in the life and world of man that can be legitimately left outside the boundaries of the gospel. Because nothing has independent existence outside of the gospel. And the Bible is big, not because our needs are big. It is big because the gospel is big. Because everything in the world, in the word of God, all in New Testament, is the good news of the kingdom. And it addresses all of life. Okay. Before telling us that we should have become mature, desiring the solid food of the gospel, the author of Hebrews tells us in the beginning of the previous chapter, chapter 4, that the gospel is not something given to us only in the New Testament, contained in a few sentences. The good news, he says in Hebrews 4.2, were preached to the people of Moses' time. Just as they are preached to us today. Isn't it amazing how we prefer to identify the gospel with the New Testament and the law with the Old Testament? When the very New Testament authors tell us that it was all the gospel. But what what does the author mean? When was the gospel preached to them in Moses' times? If the gospel is our modern gospel concerned with the needs of man, eager to keep man a child throughout his adult life, where has Moses ever delivered such a gospel that is the same as today, as heard from our pulpits across America? He didn't. Hebrews 4.2 tells us that it was the same gospel, but it wasn't joined with faith. They didn't believe. Where in the Old Testament is it said that they didn't believe? Where is the direct reference to the Old Testament for us to find out where the gospel is preached in the Old Testament? The direct reference is the text that we just read. Deuteronomy 1. Where Moses said, I told you all this, this, these things, but for all these things... You did not believe. In verse 32 of the text that we just read, Moses says to the generation that's about to enter Canaan, You did not trust the Lord your God. He's speaking about their parents, of course, covenantally, representatively, for all this. 
For all what? Read the whole chapter again after the sermon. You'll see what. First, it was about a promise to be given the promised land. A land was there to be given to the Hebrews, and that land was part of the gospel. Now, verse 8 says, go and possess the land. But don't you make the mistake to think that it was only about the land of Canaan. Because it was all in the context of the promise to Abraham. And what was the promise to Abraham? Was it the land of Canaan? No. Romans 4.13 tells us about the true promise to Abraham. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world. How did that promise come? Was it through something outside the gospel? No. The same verse says, it came through the righteousness of faith, which is exactly the promise of the gospel. The righteousness of faith. It wasn't a small strip of mountainous land that the Hebrews were promised. This, that land was only the beginning. The promise To the people of God. And that means the church was the whole world. It was also about organizing the society. Verses 9 through 18 of that same chapter, Moses recalls how God told him to establish a system of leadership and courts. Society was not outside of the gospel. Society was not something that some common kingdom of common grace would take care of. Society was not separate kingdom from the kingdom of God. Organizing that society was a command given in the gospel. And the author to the Hebrews and Moses tell the Hebrews, you did not believe the gospel. Because you refused to judge with righteousness in your society. It was also about the law, the blueprints for dominion. Verse 18, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. And that was also part of what they did not believe. That means the gospel. It was also about the willingness to fight the enemies of God and to take possession of the land, bringing God's judgment upon them. Do not be shocked. Do not fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. And this is also the gospel. Opposing the enemies of God and the promise that God will give you the victory to defeat them is also the gospel in history on earth, not after the last judgment. But for all this, you didn't trust your God. Nowhere in the Old Testament were they given the truncated gospel of modern American churches. So that they wouldn't believe it. What they didn't believe was a comprehensive gospel. A call to battle. A conquest. A call to dominion. And that's the call that they rejected and despised in their unbelief. 
They weren't given the simple proposition that Jesus died for them, for each one personally. And therefore they needed to be babies all life, pampered and taken care and fed with milk. And that all God cared about was their need for salvation. To the contrary, it was the unbelieving Israel that when they refused to believe the true gospel given to them by Moses, wanted to return back to Egypt where they were taken care of like babies. Return us back to Egypt because we have the leeks and the onions and the garlic and all things for free. But Moses insisted, there's a promise for you all there. The gospel, and it has to do with organizing a society, taking dominion, fighting God's enemies on earth, and exercising mature judgment as grown-up men. You have the world promised to you. Just as Paul said many years later, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ. It's not about your childish needs and wants. It's about dominion over all things and covenantal submission of belonging to Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. It's often claimed that the New Testament actually does contain a place where the gospel is limited to those few propositions so popular in the church in America today. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to open your... Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, because you're going to be challenged with this argument. I'm reading from verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Fair enough, right? And that he appeared to Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, uh, who I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether, whether then it was I or they, or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached, that he has been raised from the dead... <clears throat> How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not being raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. Is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised, if in fact the dead are not raised, sorry. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, were of all men most to be pitied. Seems legitimate to say that the gospel is simple, right? It is limited to these propositions about the death of resur- and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It's concerned with what Christ has done for us, and that's about it, right? And it is actually confirmed when we read that special addendum to verse 19. I want you to look at verse 19, and we have a special addendum there. This is the gospel, and this now is not the gospel, right? Do you see there? there? Do you see there in, in verse 19? Uh, up until here was the gospel, and now I'm not speaking the gospel. Right? You see it? Because I don't. It's not there. And I think we need to continue in order to find what the whole gospel is all about. Okay? Let's continue. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now we got that out of the way. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Then comes the end when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. He has abolished. In Greek, it is the end comes when up to that end he's been working to abolish all these powers. That's the Greek meaning of the, of the word. Yeah, And, listen to this, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies. What does the word all mean? It means all. All his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And when all things are subjected to him, and all things is all things, are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. It's about God. It's about his power. It's about his authority. It's about his sovereignty over the whole world. The gospel is not limited to verse 19. The gospel Paul is speaking about ends where it says, God may be all in all, which means every power and authority must be subjected to Christ, and that is history. That's what history is. We're working to subject every power and every authority to Christ. Because the sovereignty of God, His power and authority over the whole world is manifested in Christ subjecting all under His feet. Does that mean civil government as well? Yes. It's part of all. Paul said in 1 Timothy 
1, 8 through 10. And let's go to 1 Timothy, because that's a verse that is very often, I'd say, avoided today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. Listen to this. this. Some of these are civil crimes here. And Paul says it's good for the law to be applied to those civil crimes. For those who kill their fathers, fathers and mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and, and uh, sodomites and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And then he gives us immediately in the next verse the legal covenantal foundation for his beliefs about civil law and why the government should punish all these and what is it? According to what? To the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see such a solemn declaration of what the gospel, of, of a solemn description of the gospel. The glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul finds very important for everybody to understand that the application of the law in, civil air, in, civil, in the civil realm is not outside of the limits of the gospel. It is actually Entirely based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which every one of us is entrusted. A boy who is only given toy tools and toy cars will never grow to, ma- to the maturity to know what it is to own a car, to have to deal with papers, driving limitations, maintenance, repairs, liability, etc., 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 because it's not just fun. Okay? He may make all the noises with a little car with a toy car. May play on on, on the the floor in the living room with it. But it will be a childish play. A girl who is given only dolls and dolls' houses will never grow to the maturity to be a woman and a wife and care for children and rule a house. In a boy or a girl who have been only given a truncated gospel, a gospel that is focused on their needs and wants and desires and imaginations, but not on righteous dominion over all of God's earth. Organizing society, enforcing a law, fighting enemies, will never learn to be mature Christians. And we, the American church, have sold our birthright for a bag of Skittles. For the promise to never to have to grow up. Because God really doesn't want us to, go, to grow up, just to remain childish, irrelevant, and out of touch with reality. The same nation that conquered a vast wilderness within two generations and built a civilization from scratch. That, and that civilization has been the envy of the world, built within an unbelievably short time. Today suffers wolves in sheep's clothing, soothe our minds, put our conscience, consciences to sleep, because we're too immature to eat the solid food of the comprehensive gospel of the kingdom. 
and too stupid to understand the depth and the breadth of Christ's message. Next time, when you hear a celebrity tell you how simple and short the gospel is, tell them to go fly a kite. Don't let them get to your kids. Turn off your TV, your radio, your, your internet. If there is the danger that such preachers will be able to reach your son or your daughter with their parody of the gospel. As an American milkman told the British noble lady two centuries ago, it's better for my son to come back home drunk three times a week than not be educated about his rights and responsibilities as a free man. I tell you today, it's better for your son to get drunk but learn to work and take dominion than to listen to preachers who would make him be a child his whole life. What will happen to America? This is a concern of so many Christians these days. But the fate of America is inseparably tied to the preaching from its pulpits. That's how America was born, by the way. And if she dies one day, it will be because the pulpits have stopped giving the true gospel of Christ. May God be merciful to her and always keep a remnant of preachers who have not reduced the gospel to baby food or nursery rhymes. The fate of the next generation of Americans depends not on how effective our political battles are and how prudent our retirement plans and investments are. And how splendid our universities are. These are all important things. But they are only products of a greater issue. And that issue is, how big is your gospel? And until we start forcing out preachers of small truncated gospels from the pulpits and replace them with those who preach the full, comprehensive, world and life view, culture-changing, law-abiding, victorious gospel, of the kingdom, America will continue going down the cultural drain because the greatness of your gospel determines the greatness of your future. And the Hebrews in Moses' time discovered that. This audio version of How Big is the Gospel by Bojidar Marinoff has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Bojidar Marinoff. Please visit ChristendomRestored.com to download and read many articles by Bojidar Marinoff.